Hello, and welcome to New Caribbean Voices, People Tree Press's literary podcast, featuring the best literature from the Caribbean region and diaspora. My name is Malaika Booker, and I'm the curator and host for this podcast series. Right, so today I'm speaking with Jeremy Pointin, the head honcho at People Tree Press. And we're doing something different with the podcast. We are going to be cooking up Caribbean culinary literary delights and showcasing some of the different ways that Caribbean writers write about food for the next kind of sequence of podcasts. I think Jeremy and I kind of dreamed this idea up before COVID and started collecting all the kind of excerpts and stuff from people and curating this, but it became more and more relevant when we had to stay in our homes for COVID, as people began to kind of get to grips with their kitchen um, and be at one with their kitchen. So we're gonna hear a selection of writing from different writers across the Caribbean and the diaspora around food. But first of all, I'm gonna talk to Jeremy um, and have an introduction with him as the head honcho, but also as the person who reads every single book that's published by People Tree, so is able to understand in a way how integral food is to Caribbean writing, Caribbean culture. So let us begin. As the editor who reads everything that comes into the press, what did you observe about food in Caribbean literature and in the literature that you were reading and the manuscripts you were reading? Well, I mean, I have to say that it was even well before that. I mean, in the kind of um, 20 years before People Tree of beginning to read Caribbean writing. I mean, it's think, remembering things like George Lamming's In the Castle of My Skin and seeing how important food was in that novel, in the sort of ceremony of, of farewell in that novel where George's G's mother it feeds him uh, fufu and, and, and flying fish. Something which, where just at the point where he's about to leave his community, feeds him something which will always stay with him as being about the community. So even, be- even before sort of becoming sort of People Tree's editor and so on, you were aware that this was something that w- was an important kind of uh, dimension of, of Caribbean writing a way that, that Caribbean writers kind of almost automatically went to when they were trying to express some kind of deep emotion. What I wanted to talk about was some of the things that are brought up in the work is to do with migration and the, the movement of food from the Caribbean to Britain or America and the relationship of food as a way to pass on legacy to coin inheritance can you speak a bit about that yeah i mean i think i mean i mean what one of the things that you know that there is a number of kind of i mean it's both about people carrying things with them and you know and the, there are two or three kind of poems uh, and kwame dawes has a poem called thelma's precious cargo where thelma brings all her food you know from the camp she's trying to get into canada and the customs, of course, stop her. And she sits down on the floor and she's going to eat that food. There's nobody going to stop her doing that. So you've got, you've, you've got that kind of thing and the one or two sort of other things. But also, I mean, you can see it in things like um, 
Khadija Ibrahim's Another Crossing. Uh, she calls one of the, her poems, My Mother's Dutch Pot of Stories. So it, it's the connect, and, and there are poems which kind of reflect on the, on the notion of, you know, of, of the eating, the preparation of food. You know, the, the way, for instance, her, mo her mother in Leeds was the kind of place where all the visiting reggae stars used to rock up, you know, because they, they you know, they knew they would get good Jamaican food, food there. So there's that, and, but it's a connection, isn't it, also between the Dutch pot of stories, the, you know, the, the kind of storytelling and the food, they, they, they connect, connect up together. And, it, and that, uh, go on, sorry. And that Dutch pot, you know, I remember yeah. when I moved to Leeds, um, the first thing I said to Khadija, who's a friend of mine um, and was helping me with the relocation is I can't cook because I need to get a Dutch pot. I don't know how to buy a Dutch pot in Britain because all my Dutch pots have come from Grenada or Trinidad um, because they've traveled over with me through family or myself. Um, and her showing me that the shop around the corner sold Dutch pots. And, right. and, and she was like, don't you want an aluminum pot? Don't you want? I was like, no, I need the first thing I need to put in my kitchen is a Dutch pot. Um, and so it was really it was very interesting that that, that Dutch pot and the part it plays in cooking particular food that I think I cannot cook outside of a Dutch pot. <laughs> Migration and the traveling of food seems to be the theme being explored in this episode. Here, Kwame Dore's poem, Thelma's Precious Cargo, taken from his collection, Resisting the Enemy, in New and Selected Poems, illustrates just this fact. Here, the poem makes feast and ceremony and shows how as Caribbean migrants, we do that wherever we can. He tells us the story of Thelma in the airport. Here is Thelma's Precious Cargo. Thelma's Precious Cargo by Kwame Dawes, published in Resisting the Enemy in 1995. Thelma's precious cargo. She was bringing fried fish, festival, banana, dumpling, rose corn, sweet sugar cane, nicely peeled and cool, when the plastic glove customs officer squinge up him nose like him smelling his upper lip decide to break every fruit, got open the fish, spilling all that white flesh and sweet fried tomato all over the counter. Say, he was searching for drugs, searching for disease, from this great-grandmother with sentries springing in her eyes, who come just to catch a sight of the children she never met and who might grow up without the grounding of stories she'd been carrying all these years. But Thelma never panicked before, no child. She simply gathered the ruins and then spread a bandana flaming red with yellow light on the blue steel carpet in a corner and she placed every injured offering on the shimmering surface. Thelma light a candle and draw a circle around the feast like a prayer. And then she invite the people, them who line up to face the plastic glove man, to come sit with she and her grandson, 
who's smiling like he can't stop all this time and eat a good sunrise meal. No fuss, just this laughing in her eyes. And them drink off all the sweet sop juice laced with a little Appleton fire. And them eat that food like communion. And when them was finished, tell me say a prayer and whisper a little forgiveness to the boy with the gloves. And them calmly wobble through the customs clean as a priest before service with all the drugs and disease swimming and singing in them belly, walking like that into the sweet Canadian air, warm as ever and ready. And tell me tell the story again and again and end it with the last sweet lines. Child, them should have followed it to the toilet today for some of them seed find soil and see the tree them there still africa people been carrying them possessions in them shit forever precious cargo child precious cargo and man we couldn't stop love jeremy pointing eloquently spoke about the ceremony of farewell in lamin's novel in the castle of my skin. We'll now hear from the poet Marcia Douglas, reading a poem from her book, Electricity Comes to Cocoa Bottom. The poem, Leaving Ohio, enables us to witness such a ceremony, conjuring up memories and a litany of food. Here, the poem is both ceremony and witness. Leaving for Ohio. My father is humming at the cross, at the cross. In the dusk, the long hills lit up with veranda lights in Circle Kingston, a rhinestone bracelet on the wrinkled arm of an old woman. And except for the drunk asleep, beneath a stinking toe tree, cradling his bottle of red-striped beer, the roads to the Palisados are still empty. Driving the old Ford van, where I first saw the light, my father taps his fingers on the steering wheel. Mother stares at a ship in the harbor. The sea smooth like the skin across her shoulders. Norman Manley Airport, five miles, and there is something I must say before I go. The burden of my heart. Something about my father smiling, meeting me after school. My first day at kindergarten. His hair parted on the side, white sleeves rolled up to the elbows. Something about him driving across Bog Walk Bridge in the thick rain, the van with bad wipers. We were so safe. My mother waiting for us at home, porcelain plates painted with blue roses. A mound 
of white rice to the left of the roses. At the airport, my father unloads the suitcase packed with mother's black cake, fried fish wrapped in foil, bun, a tin of Milo, a bottle of guava jelly, a purple orchid between the pages of a volume of poems. The suitcase leaves on a conveyor belt, disappears into a dark square. My mother's eyes shine like the wet glaze of the porcelain plates left on the dish rack. And there is something I must say before I go. When I was little, we pressed our heads together under the almond tree at Seaward Drive, she brushing her lashes against mine. My father holds me, pats me on the back with the same strong hand used to grasp his cutlass, chop sugarcane on the mountainside. Last boarding call and already the green hills are far away. From the airplane window, they seem so small. She is the woman on the waving gallery, wearing the black and blue dress with the white collar, her fingers in the wire fencing, like a child watching from a yard across the street. He is the man to her left, in the light-colored shirt, his hand in his pocket, humming, the burden of my heart. Khadija Ibrahim's poem, My Dutch Pot of Stories, taken from her collection, Another Crossing, seems to be in conversation with Kwame's. It's about stories and food traveling. The poem explores how we pass heritage onto our children and how our stories bust out with food. This poem is dedicated to my mother, Gloria McLaren, or some like to call her Miss Gloria, but I fondly refer to her as Flo Glow. She was born in 1940 and arrived in England in 1962. My mother's Dutch pot of stories. My mother can tell a good story, the same way she cooks up a meal that will always sweet you. The ingredients of her words will fill your belly with the flavours of life. You'll taste the tale. She'll capture a moment in time with her pots and pans. Take you hand in hand across an ocean to a place where hurricanes are named Charlie and Gilbert. To her Jamaica, 
before independence, before she traveled at the age of 22. In the heat of Saturday soup, when the mood takes her, she'll start to talk about back home. Mixing her talk and gestures, she'll drop a joke or two like boiled dumplings. Make you fall over in belly busting laughter. She'll forget her words and you just got to guess. Move through each sentence when she wheel into patois and say, Pass me the sing ting pan tapa di ting. She's a storyteller from the days of old. She don't laba laba open at anyone business. Oh no. My mother talks with substance grounded from a living history. With all its goings on, connecting blood ties to family roots. From her mother Eugenie, a Higla woman on the market. Her father Elisha, alias Daddy Mac, a farmer on Kingston Railway and a member of three lodges. She'll tell you how she helped Mama to push the cart to Linstead Market and balance baskets of goods on her head to selling Carnation Market. She'll tell you how the British Empire stretched its neck like mangoes, how she dressed up in a pretty prim and proper frilly frilly frack, her knees and teeth shining in the smiles of waves of red, white and blue flags for the Queen's Jubilee visit to the island. Or when she was little and fast, how she cut through barbed wire fence that tore the side of her face. Or when her brother Desmond and Paps used to go uptown to catch a big shore in a friend's father's funeral car, to rock easy to the scar beats and slow it down rhythms. Take your time. No need to worry. Hit tunes of Hepton Lewis. Oh, how she and Knockney Pearly from Cuba knock tins and sing back up for Ken Booth, Alton and Haltens Ellis when they rehearsed under the mango tree on Fifth Street as she grew with Alton before he reached England. She was born a town, one of eight children who came from Lawrence Tavern in the Paris of St. Andrews, before them reached a town. She studied at Trench Town Government School and turned Kingstonian gal prim up in homemade fashions of 1957 to go to big, big theatre and dances from Majestic, Palace, the Ambassador in Trenchtown, Crossroads to the Carib 
and world theater dotted off. She lived at Fifth Street. Her sister Violet moved to Maxwell Avenue by Jackie Edwards. Amongst the church singers, hard time workers, higglers in the market. She would say to me and Angela, I want them to know. I can't hear your market, you there? If we wouldn't sit with knees together or keep our voices down. She'll remember the talk in Trench Town. How Martima Planner was sent to Africa to meet the king, Hale Selassie of Ethiopia. She'll tell you the tale, transport you to the place. So you feel you was being there in the folds and layers of the words. She'll make you come back hungry for more. We hear from me, Malika Booker, reading the poem Brixton Market, taken from my collection, Pepper Seed. The poem explores what happens when we settle on these shores. What do we inherit and pass on through the ritual of shopping in Brixton Market? Brixton Market. I would stand at market stores and watch her take days to pick how she would test the okra, bending their tips, placing only the ones that snapped into a brown paper bag. The way she scrutinized the yam, feeling and weighing it in her palm. Plantings picked one by one, like an artist selecting her tools. Flawed produce would be haggled to the last, and sometimes she would turn her back and walk to make her point and get her way. I pulled that shopping trolley into the stench of meat shops, waiting as she pointed to red slaps she wanted. How many times would she point and weigh to change her mind? I would stare at the goose-bumped boiling chicken hanging from the ceiling, the cow foot and severed pigtails. I tried to hold my breath at the fish stall as she chose the kippers and we waited for the snapper to be cleaned. At Quicksave, each can of baked beans was vetted for dents, each egg delicately lifted searched for cracks. I would learn that this is how my grandmother taught her, kneeling in the bush, uprooting dashim on the family land. She, too, hawk-eyed, tested each provision to know what was ripe, ready, and good to cook. In our conversation, Jeremy Pointon and I spoke extensively about the connections to food and how that covers many other forms of and it's central to Caribbean life. And I think then looking through over that kind of 30 odd years of, of, of books coming in, at every kind of stage it's something which regularly comes up but also comes up in lo lots of sort of different different kinds of forms. 
uh, so that you know there's no there's no it doesn't become a stereotype it becomes a way a way that that writers sort of naturally reach to to talk about sort of particular things um so i mean i mean one of the one of the one of the i mean just sometimes in the sheer enjoyment of food i remember the, one of the very in the very first kind of books we ever published Ruplal Monar's back down people and, and some of it, the, his other stuff, Jan Jett and so on. Um, what what comes out of what comes out of that then it is how central food is as a, a, a communal kind of activity. There's there's a story of his about somebody who who's I think it's called Cookman or something, and he's the man who cooks for the local cricket team. And it's the it's the you know and the, at one stage they say well you should go to England and you could become a chef and he's disgusted by the idea he doesn't cook for money he cooks because it's it's what you know he what he wants to do and there's a sort of funny scene in that where the the local white manager from the sugar estate also sort of you know patronises the, the the cricket team and he, he you know he eats so much food that they have to carry him out. So you, you've got that, that, that kind of thing. And that brings us food as sacrament, food as resistance, food as colonial um, tool, food as, as kind of, uh, you know, we, we've talked about food as kind of bringing culture together as a kind of way of creolization. Um, I think it's only fitting that we talked about the recipe book with John Lyons. <laughs> that's right yes i mean one, you know i mean the, yeah one of the books that that um brings all of those things together is john lyon's cook up in a trinity kitchen mm. you know, bring, it, it brings in memory it brings in that kind, i mean again i mean john would really get you know that the, uh, about that that you can take food that stage further from the customary to thinking about how 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 you can innovate a bit. You start with the customary, and then you look at all the kind of things that you can do. So you know, so that John's book it, it is about it has its links to all the kind of memories of, of the food that he ate in Trinidad, the food his his grandmother cooked, and all that that sort of stuff. But it's also sort of taking it further in in, in terms of um, you know how how can you push these recipes a little bit further. How if you just change this and, and that, but it, yeah, it, it reminds us then that any culture, unless it goes in for constant change and constant kind of reinvention, in the end, you know, becomes stuck. And you know, John's book, you know, sort of shows you how you can how you can do that. Stay very true to the idea of Trini food, but also just to keep keep on re, re, reinventing it. And the, the other good thing about the book is, as well as the, this book of poems. And it's a book of lo lovely pictures, you know, mm. that, um, you know, you, you get all the all the senses, you know, what you can see, what you can hear through the poems. And what if you cook the cook the things you'd, you'd be able to smell and taste. So, yeah, yeah it, it really pulls all that stuff together. And, um, and I think that's a really good way to, to, to kind of tease everyone's appetite, to give them an idea of some of the stuff that they're going to hear in the in the in the podcast. But also, I would love to reference them to the essay that you have written that's on online um, as a follow up to kind of get get more of an insight into how integral food is to Caribbean culture, to its history, to its legacy, um, emotionally. Um, I love that poignant story that you told 
um, about food. This is the first time I gave her a gift and how poignant it is. Um, and I, I'm aware as a writer that both of my books, uh, my pamphlet and the book Pepper Seed are named, Bread, Bread Fruit is the name of the first book, Pepper Seed <laughs> is the name of the next one. And um, I'm wondering, am I going to continue this food, you know, um, journey? Um, but food is very, very important in my work. It's kind of also the way to be nostalgic, the way to chart history and the way to kind of encourage intergenerational conversations. So, um, yeah, I, I, I hope everybody will enjoy this these series of podcasts and cook up a lot of delightful stuff run to their kitchen mouth water maybe even be upset with us because they want to replicate some of this um and and find it hard finding the ingredients but um um yeah so i look forward to us doing this series thank you jeremy we finished with the writer john lyons reading from his exquisite remarkable collection cook up in a Trini kitchen. Here the poems illustrate food as healing as well as provide us with recipes and I feel it is an apt way to close this episode around food. Great Granny Mommy's Sunday Food Cuckoo and Peppery Callaloo was my great granny's Sunday meal. The food for she body and she spirit too. And though the rest of us eat chickens too, we still have appetite for mommy's real cuckoo and peppery callaloo. When she reached for the pot, we knew the next thing she go need was some cornmeal to make the food for she body and she spirit too. Sundays, she's a strange one. She drew a lot of strength cooking with a ritual zeal. She cuckoo and peppery callaloo. And with each mouthful she eats, she grew in wisdom to cope with any ordeal. This food for she body and she spirit too did make she remember Africa and renew she identity. It did make everything real. Cuckoo and peppery callaloo was the food for she body and she spirit too. How to make a yam mash? Wash off the burnt dirt from a kush yam. Peel with a sharp knife, skin stained with earth. Cut up the yam, wash it again. Cook it in a pan of boiling water. And while it's still hot, mash it up with a bit of butter, add salt and pepper. Use a wooden spoon to stir in some hot milk, but not too much. And soon yam go to yam and lick. Thank you for listening to New Caribbean Voices, People Tree Press's literary podcast. Today on this episode, we started a journey cooking up Caribbean culinary and literary delights. From airports to markets to kitchen pots, full of migration exploits, feasts and cooking. We heard literary offerings from Marcia Douglas, Kwame Dawes, myself, Malaika Booker, Khadija Ibrahim, and John Lyons. The writers presented 
in the podcast are all published by People Tree Press. So please visit the website www.peopletreepress.com to find out more about these exquisite writers and also purchase their books. I'd like to end by thanking the editor, Jeremy Pointing, publisher, founder and managing director for the first in a series of episodes about food, the Arts Council of England and Clarissa Luard Award for their support. And now, not surprisingly, the producer Melody Triumph and myself are really hungry. So we're going to close this episode and go and cook up our own food and our own delight. But please look out for further episodes of New Caribbean Voices and also more episodes about food. Thank you.